Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. The increased digitalization of finances resulted in massive transformations and disruptions across the entire industry. Opportunities have emerged from these trends like the use of AI to drive personalization, decentralized finance, embedded banking, and increased collaboration between fintech firms and legacy banks. Driven by the increase of consumers with access to more technology, the pace of change is increasing with innovation at the forefront and existing business models being challenged. I'm so excited to have my friend, Ali Patterson, editor-in-chief and publisher of FinTech Finance Magazine on the Banking Transform podcast. He will discuss the top financial sector trends for 2023 and will share ways organizations must become more future-ready. In the 2023 Retail Banking Trends and Priorities Report, we found that financial institutions are actually doubling down on the need to deliver better banking experiences at a speed and scale only imagined a few years ago. In many cases, the delivery of financial services being redefined by those organizations willing to embrace change, take risks, and disrupt themselves. The question becomes, how does a bank credit union, or fintech firm become future ready. So welcome to the show, Ali. You know, as I was thinking about who to invite to the Banking Transform podcast to discuss global trends in financial services, you were actually the first person that came to mind, not just because you're continually immersed in what is going on in the banking industry, but also because your exposure is, is actually broader than mine is, looking at Europe and beyond. So what would you say right now in your mind is the most important trend that we'll see emerge in 2023? Well, Jim, thank you so much for having me on the on the show. It's uh, I'm, I'm I'm very flattered to be on 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 here. Uh, it's also quite cool to be on the one looking at the trends for for 2023. It's uh, I'm I'm looking forward to listening back to this in 12 months and going, uh, you mucked it. You were all, <laughs> all over the place here. Yeah. Um. There's a, there's a few things that come straight to mind. Um. Something that I think we're going to see happening certainly in Europe, and we're already starting to see a little bit of that. Um, there's going to be some casualties and consolidation. Um, just in the last uh, in the last seven days, I know Rookie in Germany uh, has gone into administration, um, but that doesn't mean that it's gone because I imagine various other institutions are going to swoop in and uh, and acquire either the the customers or different parts of it, um, and Rookie is um, you know you, you know Rookie. It's, it's like uh, they've got, they got about half a millionish customers. They're like a kind of uh, a Chime or a Monzo or a Starling. Yeah. But in uh, I, I, I don't know who who would kind of pick up those bits of the assets. But equally, I think there's going to be a, a lot of consolidation as as a VC money starts to become a little bit a little bit harder to get. That there'll be yeah. people banding together. That's not a really positive way to start the year, is it? But yeah, I think uh, a few. Let's take the opposite then. What fintech firms, because I, I think I agree with you totally on the fact that, you know, now more than ever, it's not about how much money you can raise, but how much money you can make. Uh, basically, it gets into profitability. You know, uh, you know, Starling just got some really good press on the fact that they're just going to kill revenues this year and, and expect to even grow bigger than they are. But you know, when you look beyond Starling and, and you look at fintech firms in general, 
uh, and and as well, you know, the consolidation of the regular legacy banking industry. Who do you see as some of the winners in the fintech space in 2023? I'm going to very strategically again take a sip of my coffee cup, showing the Starling Bank logo. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think um, 2023 is going to be the year where it's not about how much money you raise; it's about what you can bring in in in, in revenue. Um, I I always find it. In fact, I, I, saw, I can't remember who it was, but. Do you know, I'm going to take credit for it. I saw a great tweet uh, that I did, um, which was basically saying I would never invest in a, uh, uh, I'd never put forward like seed money for a consumer product because if it's for a consumer product and you're not already making money, if you're not bootstrapping it, then I, I kind of, I have questions. I mean, it's, I agree with the, the, the thought process behind that, but something like, Back in the day when a lot of these neobanks were entering the market, it was all about what runway they can get and just getting as many customers as possible, irrelevant of, of the cost and the profitability of them. Now, it, it, it is, we're going to see valuations continue to fall, so it is about what can actually be brought in in terms of revenue. And, and Starling, both on their consumer side and their lending side uh, and their business side, I, I think they are poised to not only make a lot of revenue, but to start to move into other areas. And I am definitely putting myself forward if anyone from Starling is listening to, uh, I would love to try out your mortgage products. So when you, uh, when you, start, when you start to do that, give me, give, give me a shout because when they start to move into that, then they become a, uh, a proper grown-up bank. You know, it's interesting because a lot has been said about Starling. We've had Anne on the show before, Anne Bowden, the CEO of Starling on the show before. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that they always took a, a, a steady route to make a better bank as opposed to completely disrupting the banking model for the sake of disrupting it. And they never realized, they never basically relied on the outside funding nearly as much as a percentage of what they did as a business. They, they continue to have their, their banking chops. And I, I think, you know, we're seeing that with, with other fintech firms for everything from a PayPal to um, a Revolut that, that if you focus really strongly on an area and you do it better than anybody else and you keep in mind the fact you have to make money eventually – it's worked well, you know, with this whole uh, called fallout of the fintech world, as well as fallout to some degree of smaller legacy financial institutions, as they look for scale or they look for profitability, does this fallout of the VC money pave the way for really exciting collaborations and partnerships where solutions can be bought, partnered, collaborated with traditional financial institutions? God, that's a lot to unpack there. Let me, I, I want to touch on one of the things you said, first of all. First of all, Re Revolut is a company I have learned to never, ever, ever underestimate. No. Yeah. Uh, I, you would think, it, I mean, it could be very easy. I, I know they've had a few historic kind of oh, PR yeah. missteps and you go, what, what are you doing, Revolut? And then all of a sudden they <laughs> smashed users, so I never yep. underestimate them. Um, uh, a, good, a friend of mine who we've done a, we actually sent around the world on a on a race. Uh, a guy called uh, called Max Fosh. I always bring him up because I, I I think this is a good indicator in terms of uh, fundraising. Um, a lot of your listeners would never have heard of Max Fosh, but he actually at one point was the richest uh, richest man in the world. Uh, he um, incorporated a, a business 
um, with, I think, like a million shares, and he sold one share for 50 British pounds, um, or, or whatever. I can't remember exactly what he sold it for, but it gave his business the valuation of 500 billion. And as the 99.99% shareholder, he had a net worth of 500 billion, making him the richest person in the world um, on, on paper. Without fraud. Which is without <laughs> fraud uh, and, and without revenue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a lot, lot of sort of um, vanity uh, mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of valuations as opposed to true valuations. And you see things that Revolut is worth like five Nat Wests and or Revolut's worth like a Wells Fargo or whatever it, whatever it may be. And it's very easy to over to almost scoff at that and overlook that because behind the scenes they're actually they're making a good amount of revenue and beyond that they've got a hell of a of a of a product stack and of such a variety of different things in there um that that modular marketplace idea it's it's something that i always feel has legs but i've never seen it gain the traction it can um just to go back to to starling bank um Starling Bank has this phenomenal marketplace um, for certain things like uh, zero for accounting or even like things like EcoSpend um, for, for payments. You can attach a pension on there and all sorts can kind of be, can be brought in on there. Fantastic. It makes life easier, but I think it's a little bit too, I guess it's a little bit too technical for the average consumer, both small business and and person. So I'm, 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 not, I'm not sold on the idea that that will be the norm despite it actually being a really good a really good product and they've done that before they've introduced products that really serve a need but a need that most people unless they're they sit down with somebody wouldn't realize how much they benefit from you know it, it's it's scalability again on a service level but you know it, it's interesting we, we talk about it often and one of the key trends underlying all the changes in banking going on right now is the importance of innovation in fact, yeah. your recent awards program in, in London highlighted this. My question is, where do you think the next greatest amount of innovation will occur in banking in 2023? And have we moved away from the next big, big thing to more of rapid iterations within marketplace innovation? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm glad you've asked this because my answer has changed in the last seven days. Um, I've I've been in your neck of the woods. I've been at uh, CES, yeah. uh, the Consumer Electronics Show. Um, my God, it's big. Um, I think we walked a total of thirty nine miles just around. Oh my gosh! All, uh, it was yeah. Um, yeah, huge. And a lot of it, I was looking around, going, "This is um, I want that. I want that." A lot of it, I'm like, "These are things that I kind of want." But there's a lot of things that I think. It's not a finance event. It's a technology and consumer technology event. And there's a lot of things there I'm looking at. I'm going, this needs to make money. I can see how this could be incredibly efficient in making money. This is a buzzword, but a buzzword for a very specific reason, which is Im- embedded finance. Right. The opportunity that embedded finance has with just a little bit of imagination um, is, is huge. I mean, the the example that is uh, such a go-to example, but it's so good. Uber. I took a taxi in uh, in Vegas. wasn't Uber. I got out and I thought, oh, God, I've got to go back and pay. But the way that it's, it's linked in so seamlessly, love it. Amazon Fresh stores are walking, buy something, don't even think about it. 
Love it. I think embedded finance also gives us that opportunity to move to that almost life as a service model. Uh, you have Netflix, you have, uh, used to be you have to pay, buy this DVD, this DVD, this DVD. Now you have your DVD selection, your, your video selection as a service. I can see a combination of everything being as a service and embedded finance that you, you can go out, you live your life as you know you, you want to, and you're not even thinking about the the financial implications because you almost have like a, a tiered like subscription to uh, uh, to life. Well, and it can you know if you take embedded finance and open banking in the same conceptual context, you know it changes revenue models. You know, financial institutions would no longer need to rely on interchange income and and spread, which gets narrower by the day. It, it just there's I think you're right that it it boggles the imagination what can be done. And then it makes you remember things that we take for granted now that have been around, as you said, Uber. I love Airbnb and I'm I I just got an Airbnb unit uh, in Phoenix for the spring and realized that they have embedded opportunities to rent cars from the house owners, to be able to unlock parts of the house, a game room or a movie room that would have been locked. And you have some interesting concepts as well as I've taken advantage of them before, Airbnb experiences where while you're in the city, they're going to connect you with things that you can do that are very unique, usually one-on-one experiences around the area that are from eating somebody eating at somebody's house to getting a, a lesson of some sort. And it's just very interesting what can be. And I think your point, too, is the fact that this isn't in the traditional banking event. This is part of a, of a much greater consumer innovation event. A thousand percent. I, you know what I love about the Airbnb experiences? You um you can't Google them. You can't Google what go and have dinner with this person. It, it, it's impossible to to Google. Um what one thing I saw at CES that really captured my imagination in terms of future revenue streams for financial services. Um they they had uh, pretty much a hall the size of, of a money twenty twenty dedicated for uh, uh vehicle technology. You had your hover cars you had all your electric and driverless cars but what, what kind of took me a little bit off guard is you had um this concept bus or not even bus this concept um driverless uh taxi that you hop in it and it shows you it takes you wherever you need to go but it was all integrated into its environment in terms of promoting various different products and activities and the idea that as you walk towards this taxi, it's displaying adverts on there to make you go, oh, do I fancy an ice cream now? You hop in and it's, dis- it's on a feedback loop as well. So if you, look, if, you, if you respond positively to that, it then shows similar ones. Um, but it was like this ad tech embedded into driverless vehicle technology combined with that sort of as a service model. So you go, do you know what? Today, I'm going to take an hour of recreation and it would almost choose what you need to do or give you kind of options according to that the um that future they had that technology there it's just not it's not evenly distributed it's not evenly distributed i think it was uh who was it who said you know the future's already here but it's not evenly distributed gandhi yeah it was gandhi um, I, I don't know who it yeah. was but uh yeah um that, that's that that kind of stuff that i hadn't even thought of that um, but the opportunity for embedded finance in driverless vehicles, I mean, that's an industry in its own right. Well, and then, then 
you know, those driverless vehicles, are they going to be shared vehicles within the neighborhood? In other words, will will a multi-person vehicle have a weekly trip to the grocery store that, that for those people who still go to the grocery store, that the neighborhood can do that. But, you know, you, you talk about the embedded ads, you know, you look at um, uh, Uber and when you arrive at a location, they're continually feeding you things that you can do or on your way to a, a Vegas hotel asking you, do you want your meal delivered to your room? Here's some options. I mean, it's just amazing amount of it, of integration of technology and insight that makes this all work. You know, it's interesting because if we're talking about this, you know, innovation in the payments area probably has taken center stage within banking. You know, how do you see the payments ecosystem changing in 2023? What's interesting is I asked this question in 2022, and we were talking about crypto and NFTs. I'm wondering, are those concepts dead in 2023? I don't think they're dead, but they're def- they've definitely uh, stalled a little bit. Um, uh, I think um, there's a, certainly a, from the likes of, you know, from the likes of Matt Damon trying to sort of shill crypto to people, there's definitely a bitter taste in in oh, people's yeah. mouths off the back of it. Um, do you know, I, I know what I would like to see in 2023 in terms of payments innovation. Um, I, I, the world that we live in has so many options for for payments and yet people still are almost a little bit scared is the wrong word but a little bit cautious even in simple things such as faster payments electronic payments there's still that that lack of uh, confidence in that that if, if 2023 becomes the year where even if there's no further innovations but it, the uptake is a lot more equal across the board things like i know in the states you, lo- you love a paper check to, to see that decrease and move towards an electronic version, same with cash payments, because I, I always find people's attachment to cash slightly... I, I like the idea of payment choice, and I don't think we should ever remove cash in its entirety, but when people are only using cash, I kind of go, that's... You, you know that you're not, you're, you're, you're not creating that record of yourself. You're not creating that audit trail, and if you don't have that that audit trail, then it's very hard to then build up a credit limit to then be able to go and get loans, to be able to get various other Actually, products. It's, it's, right now, it's getting harder and harder for organizations that you would like to frequent or know about to know you exist. So, you know, it, it, you know the ads that we have on Instagram, but also the way we make payments helps to direct marketers. Now, some people may not like this, but I like the fact that marketers get to know more about how I'm living and are getting better and better pinpointing what I might need. You know, it's also interesting in that, you know, you, you, you talk about those pinging of things. You know, we're, we're too connected to cars, plastic. You know, I, I, you know, I've said this before, I think, to you, and I've said another podcast that, you know, I don't carry a wallet with me. I don't carry cash. I don't carry plastic. I carry my phone. And if a place doesn't accept a mobile payment, I will walk out. I will not have a, a dinner at a restaurant that hasn't already improved upon their ability to pay without plastic. Because, you know, it's interesting because consumers think, well, this is safer. It's not. I mean, you have double authentication, all kinds of other security controls in a mobile payment that you don't have in a plastic payment and certainly don't have in cash. You know, it's interesting because... I think that's going to become more and more the norm, if not for payments, certainly with transactions. And I'm, I'm 
look at a transaction as being, you know, the ability to use NFTs to get into a sporting event or to be able to have a record of you attending something important now that paper tickets are pretty much gone. Um, you know, it, when we look at payments also, we look at the improved use of data, analytics, and AI. A lot of innovation is being done in many of those spaces right now. And, and really, if you don't have your data in shape or have somebody that you can partner with, you're kind of lost. How do you see the use or application of data and AI really exploding in 2023? Now, I'm obviously leading the answer a little bit when I say exploding. But <laughs> where do you, yeah, I, I realize that's not a good interviewing, te interviewing technique, but... Where do you see some things really taking place? After walking around CES uh, and seeing the uh, the physical robots AI, they're, they're terrifying. The the the, the, the AI robots, um, uh, the dogs. No, but the place where I see it really happening is where it's accessible. Um, there's a company a big big fan of um, SmartStream, and they have a product called AI uh, uh, called SmartStream Air. And uh, I, the, the, the log line that I, I, I love is that it has the ability to solve a Sudoku that is 14 million by 14 million. Uh, I was like, okay, that, that, that makes sense. But the reason I highlight it, and, and it's products like this that I think are going to be really the, the future, is the way that it can link in with your current systems and supercharge them. So if you have somebody, uh, say, you know, checking this figure, lines up with this figure, this figure lines up with this figure, then even if that's on something as simple as Excel, you can use these tools to plug into it and it can automatically zoom down and do it. And the fact that a setup time can be fast. Um, products like that, which suddenly make AI accessible, that to me is going to have much more of an impact than something that is even more powerful, but you don't have access to it. But that's, it's about the accessibility of AI as opposed to AI itself. You know, it's interesting because you talk about AI from the standpoint of improving the back office, I'll call it kind of in a yeah, fractionalized yeah. basis. <laughs> but we're also looking at, you know, chat GPT that, that had went nuts at the end of the year. And in fact, still is going nuts because Microsoft looks like they might be investing heavily in the technology. But looking at looking at AI from a, a, a communication standpoint, but also visual, you know, all the images that you can do with AI. You know, there's a lot of risk there. But boy, there's a heck of a lot of opportunity, especially in financial services that are trying to personalize experiences and personalize content. Chat GPT is, oh my goodness, that's a fun, uh, <laughs> that, that's a fun, it's, it's, it's kind of, I know you've had uh, um, our friends at Personetics on here uh, a couple of times and they're, um, they're, they are all about that level of hyper-personalization. On the front end, tools like Chat GPT where you literally will never, it's, it's like a human being that you'll never have the same experience twice. It will be tailored for you as an individual at that moment in time based on whatever information that that system has. Um, that level of personalization, that's got to be the norm and got to be expected. If, it, if you're just, if it's just a kind of computer says no, if it's just a, a generic response, you're going to get left, uh, left behind, I feel. And this is the year where it's going to become the norm. Saw a chart yesterday that said that, you know, we're talking about uh, GPT-3 and GPT-4 
is going to come out this coming year, and it's it's ex- exponentially greater in capabilities than what we thought was pretty doggone cool in GPT three. You know, and and there's people blowing holes in it. And there's definitely a good reason for that. But what's going to be interesting is going to really put a premium on those people that can ask the right questions and direct the AI into a direction that you really want. In other words, can make you explain it more fully what you want so you get rid of any misinterpretation or dumbing it down. It, 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 it I found it fascinating, and, you know, as you're probably where I did an interview with uh, uh, ChatGBT and, and basically asked it questions about banking and did it with, with their answers only. So I didn't edit them and, and the, it was a good article. <laughs> Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not too sure if I want to, you know, get kick myself out of business. But the reality was I found really quickly that if you don't structure the question well, you get an answer like everybody else would get. If you structure it more saying in the in the in the tone of a poem or in the tone of a an executive annual report and it completely changes the way it speaks, the way it builds answers. It, it's it's quite amazing. You know, it, one other area, Ali, that, that needs to be done. And the innovation that's being put forth has been hitting barriers when the back office doesn't support the innovation. Uh, my example that I always use is digital new account opening. And, and we have the ability to deliver completely digital new account opening in three minutes yet even those companies that are selling it end up selling to companies that all of a sudden turn into a seven 10 minute project because they can't let go of legacy back office processes or they can't automate certain things and there's a lot of human elements there what do you see happening in the back offices of financial institutions and maybe that's part of what we were talking about when we talk about partnering with fintechs and third-party providers but what do you see happening in the back office of financial institutions as we look at innovation and, and transformation in 2023? I, I knew you were going to ask me this question around this. Um, I, I have a, a question sort of back uh, to th- throw back to you. If you if you hop on an airplane and uh, you're um, and you and you're flying for, you know back from Florida to to Ohio, for example, and uh, you you expect it to take you know a couple of hours, you hop on it. And you're there in three minutes. Would you not, as you walk off the plane, and think, what, what, "What's just happened?" Would you not be because you had that expectation? Would you not think this is a bit uncomfortable? I, 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 th- I think. So during the pandemic, with uh, my beloved Starling Bank, I, um, uh, I, I, there was a bounce back loan system. I, it took me about seven minutes from starting this uh, government loan scheme uh, to that fun- those funds hitting my account about seven minutes, which was incredibly fast. I think with a lot of people, if that had happened, it would have made them feel a little bit uncomfortable. I, I actually, somewhat slightly cynically, I don't think people are quite there yet, but I think very, very soon they will be. I think there needs to be that level of personalization as to how long it sh- people should expect it to take to open an account or or, or whatever, just to, just to give them their own peace of mind so that they think, ah, They've clearly done a good job. This is clearly legit. This is this is verified me. On the flip side, um, yeah, you, you've, if if you've got the technology to make something happen, it's like having a motorway and then at the last bit having a traffic jam on a tiny little road. 
it needs to I, I don't know how to do it but it does need to have that that opportunity and that option for speed to be for, for that for speed to be brought in um yeah it's um it's a tricky one that one because i think there's two there's, there's there's the consumer element to it i do you really want it to be instant yeah um and everyone will say yes but I would love to see some of the, sort of the uh, uh, almost the psychology reports off the back of that. Oh, you're, you're right. I mean, it's been said that if it's too seamless, they get a little bit itchy about risk. Yeah. On the other hand, at certain and, and it's probably different for every person, you know. So I know that I, I believe that the things are working well in the back office. So I want it faster. I want it, you know, if something can be able to be delivered tonight by Amazon as opposed to two days from now. I'm picking tonight all the way along. Now, at the same cost, you know, and they give you the, what it's amazing is Amazon gives you the choice of do you want it tomorrow or do you want it the next day? And both are free. You're going, uh, okay, I kind of get why you may be asking that. But as you build more knowledge, again, capturing insight and you find out how people want to transact and what they're most comfortable with, you know, the back office is going to define winners and losers more than the technology, I believe, top of glass. Because you top of glass is only as good as your back office. And if you're simply digitizing analog processes, it's not going to work. I, I I got ticked off of my bank right this week because they didn't intuitively realize that if something if one of my accounts did not have funds, why don't you transfer it from another one of my accounts that you realize, or at least ask me. At least ask me, as opposed to, you know, paying it with a charge. Um it, it's frustrating when it, you referenced it when people know you can do better, but you don't. Um, when people understand that, geez, if my grocery store can figure out, you know, what kind of veg, how I want my vegetables ripened when I get them, um, or if Amazon understands, don't don't forward me ideas about something I'm going to wear that's going to be green. It's just never going to fly. You know, if if those organizations can do it, the expectation of the client or customer or member is exponentially higher around financial services because they know, customers know you have so much information on them that they're becoming more and more restless as far as what they're going to accept. And I, it doesn't end up, you know, we, we talked about this before too. It doesn't end up in people attriting, actually leaving the financial institution, but it keeps them from growing the relationship, you know, so they're going elsewhere. Yeah. I'd love to love to see off off the note, off the back of that. It's um, it's one of those wonderful things that are always put in slides from uh, consultants when speaking to banks. Is uh, people don't want uh, uh, people need banking. They don't need uh, uh, they don't need banks. Right. But yep. if if you take that thought process to its extreme, people don't want a credit card. They want to be able to go out and buy something without thinking about it with that safety and security. They don't, want a, they don't want a mortgage. They want to be able to have a house. They don't want a savings account. They want to know that they have that security for the future. There's almost an opportunity to combine all of that together. Again, in that almost uh, uh, life as a service model where you yep. have all of that combined into one. You have what assets that consumer has, this house, their, um, this amount of credit rating, this amount of savings, all as one account. And then on the other side, you have, oh, they have this amount that they still need to pay on, on their mortgage, this amount on their on their credit card. So that it's it's all wrapped up in, in one thing. And that way you don't have that issue of, oh, 
I've got to move money from this account to this to, to this amount there. Because that's something I think in you know 20 years we're gonna look back and think what well, you had to manually you had to manually pay in cash into an account the way that we see that now. It's oh you had to manually move it from one account to another. That's that's crazy. Why does it is not just uh, automatic? So you see, I mean, as an overarching theme, you keep on coming back to this life as a service thing. Do you see that as a, a as an an underlying or overarching theme for what we're going to be moving to in 2023 in banking then? I listened uh, to, uh, actually on on, uh, on your friend Brett's uh, uh, podcast with uh, a while back with Manu Sadia, who yeah. wrote a book. Um, I'm not a Star Trek fan, but this is one of those books that has helped define my view of finance. He, he did uh, Trekonomics, the economics of Star Trek. Um, and it's basically putting forward three scenarios as to where the economics of humanity will end up. And there is that sort of utopian area of Star Trek where there is no money. Fascinating thought process, but then how do you get there? And one of the things that is kind of put forward in that is you do end up in, we are moving to more of that in various parts of our life, that sort of subscription model. Music or entertainment is now almost entirely on a as a service subscription model. Uh, even food with the likes of GoFresh is starting to become that almost set amount that sort of set service that comes to you it's quite efficient um i i wouldn't be surprised if more and more things get that way and then when those products start to consolidate together you are having that uh yeah that that life as a as a service model which is quite efficient in many ways i think allows humanity to scale um there is obviously a darker side to that and it does seem quite uh dystopian in some ways but it the, there's a fine line between dystopia and utopia i feel Oh yeah, and 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 it's going to be checked and balanced all the way through. I mean, we we talked about Chat GPT, and I think that's one of those things that it, we have to be careful what we ask for. You know, we we don't want to replicate the whole the whole world in that way. But on the other hand, we're going to be checking and balancing ourselves. So, you know, let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back. I am joined today by Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief and Publisher of Fintech Finance Magazine. We've been discussing how financial services trends in 2023 may be the stepping stone for what's going to be a much greater future and what the industry needs to do to become future ready. So, you know, Ali, before the break, we were talking about all these different dynamics from innovation to payments to life as a service, as you referenced it. You know, all this is going to make it so that financial institutions really have to become digital ready with an increased need for experience and talent that understands how these future technologies can be deployed. How do you envision the war for talent playing out? And is this war for talent the opening in the door for fintech firm collaboration and these these really the life brother of digital banking, really, that is not getting the scale they need, but certainly has ideas that need to be implemented. Oh, my life. I, uh, I, I have to, I'm very glad I'm not a recruitment consultant right now because the, 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 the war for talent is, um, 
it's crazy because there's so many people that I see out there that are looking for work. I can see, okay, 20% of your skill set, that's incredibly high, high demand. 80% of it, you've kind of almost been made technologically redundant uh, or you're in the process of being made technologically redundant. So yes, I want you to do this, but I, you don't command those high fees. Equally, there are a certain select few individuals that have the skill set that is in such demand that in order to satisfy the entire demand of the fintech industry, they've got to be working about three or four jobs. Uh, so um, the flip side of that, War for Talent is um, COVID has uh, enabled people to work remotely. A lot of, I know there's a few, it's a weirdly controversial topic, but right. the efficiency and the knowledge of what can be done working remotely, um, but also what can't, has greatly hit every single industry sector. Um, so working remotely does offer that opportunity for talent to be on the other side of the world in some cases. Yeah, it's interesting. My son works remotely. It was a company that was remote before COVID. And his girlfriend is a weather uh, person on TV, a meteorologist on TV. And she's, by the nature of the career, will end up changing locations potentially every two to three years. He didn't think of wanting to work remotely when he first looked for the first job. Now, I don't think he'll ever work in a traditional office because of the flexibility it gives him to work wherever he wants to work. And honestly, he, he gets to go on vacation with us and just take the part of the day that he has to work and then spend the rest of the time doing fun things. I mean, there's a lot of benefits there, but it takes a certain kind of person to be able to make that all work. In a, in a way that their their organization believes in them and trusts them, which it get bottom line, it gets down to trust in both directions. You know, it's going to be interesting. And I, I do believe that um, fintech firms, this is an opening because they have a lot of talent. And some of these firms are not going to survive, certainly not in the way they are today. And I think, you know, that's a that's a, a wealth of information and insight that we've got to be thinking about, you know. You know, Ali, as we, we look at the the behind the, the big glossy headlines for banking in 2023, we're looking at things, basically the tactical issues that banks have to get right. Banks, credit unions, and fintech firms have to get right in 2023. So without looking at the, the greatest opportunities or the biggest change, what tactically do financial institutions have to nail in 2023 to be ready? Something that I've, I think I've got a, a good, uh, a good, slightly unexpected answer here. So something that I think um, is a is a big opportunity that banks currently have the technology and the people, and also they they also have the need for. I think there's a lot of people that have been left behind with financial service in terms of products, in terms of accounts. And everyone is almost chasing those sort of early adopters, uh, the sort of digital first, the um, Gen Z, the millennials entering the workforce. But I think it's actually quite a big opportunity for some of the older generations and some of the individuals that have been left left behind. To yep. I, I think you could suck those customers up, not just individuals, but also small businesses and such. So I think you could suck a lot of those customers up into your current workaround and 
be able to deliver products and value for them and vice and, and vice versa. I, that's, that's often overlooked because you're always kind of chasing the next big thing. Um, and by then doing that, you, you can then you, you gain their trust and you can bring your entire product stack, your entire offering to these consumers, to these businesses. Whereas if you don't, they're just left on their own. Yeah, well, it's interesting too, because it really gets down to data and technology. The technology can deliver services more efficiently than ever before. The data that you can get on people, a lot of it being what I call non-traditional data, can help to find pockets of opportunity to make money, maybe not as much, but on a bigger scale than you ever would have imagined. I mean, that's that's where WeBank in China has done so well. They they've they built their business model on small loans. I mean, very small loans, but they do them in the millions. So all of a sudden, that base becomes profitable, while individual consumers may not be on their own. But you know, scale gives you a whole lot of flexibility, and, and it's going to be interesting to see. Who does that? Because we we tend as an industry to focus on those profitable segments, small business, wealthy consumers, you know, and and there's only so many of those. And we have way too many banks to serve their needs, especially as the ability to close accounts, open accounts and transact has gotten so much easier with digital transformation, you know, digital transformations that are going on. Calm capitalism, I'll call it. And that's a non, not non-competitive, but non it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot less blood in the water with picking up the, those. Oh, oh, definitely. Yep. And and the reality is, we we see little pockets of things. We see, you know, financial institutions built for musicians, for sole proprietors, all this. But the reality is, there's a there's a much bigger foundation upon that that just on the profile don't look like they're that great of a, a set. And and but with digital again, digital delivery. And education, and and empathy towards financial wellness. I think there's there's a certainly I agree. There's a tremendous pocket. I was going to say I I, I went to the uh, um, the fintech islands event uh, last year, which was I, I cannot recommend enough. Um, oh, I, I, I you have recommended it to me, and believe me, it's on my list right on my desk. In fact, of things to check in with. Yes. Well, I, I was chatting to the CEO of a bank I hadn't heard of, Answer Bank out there. He's got two three million customers. And I was inquiring to him about about, about his tech stack, um, and uh, he, he mentioned a few of the people that he's working with. I said, "Oh, wh- why did you end up, you know, choosing those?" And he said, "Oh, they um, well, it was really it was really simple. They're the only people that, that took the time to actually come out and uh, and pitch me. And if, if that was a bank in New York or London, they would have a queue of people lining up. Um, but the fact it's in it's in the Caribbean and it's uh, yes, it is, you know, if you need to physically be there to pitch, blah blah blah. Um, but I was just there going, well, that, that's 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 crazy. You know, we live in such a connected world there. So there, there's a, there, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of money to be made on the table, a lot of opportunities that uh, can still be actioned. So, what's the biggest risk in the banking industry right now as we're looking to next year or this year? I guess it is now. <sighs> it's status quoing it and just thinking that it'll be all right. That, that that culture of uh, yeah, we're you know we're the royal bank of wherever um, we'll be absolutely fine. Uh, that 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 feeling of uh, of 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 safety. 
Uh, Jeff Bezos always says about Amazon that, you know, we are always a day one company. I think a lot of banks are thinking like they're kind of a, a day two company. If they can get their mindset back into, yeah, we, we, we've actually got a fight to survive. They've got the customers. They've got access to the capital to be able to do this. There's a lot of technology out there. I think a lot of these banks have the opportunity to, I mean, BBVA is a great example of a bank that, frankly, you know, 15 years ago, you would raise your eyebrows at their use of technology. And now they've transformed and they're, they're punching way above their weight. Oh, and DBS and, uh, you know, DBS and those small organizations. But, <laughs> but it's, it's an amazing organization. U.S. Bank in the United States, you know, Chase being a big one, but Chase in the U.K. being an up-and-comer. And, and you just, you, you look at this and you go, how complacent can the entire industry be because they're still making money? I, I use the term, and they've heard it on my podcast before, that unfortunately many, especially mid-sized to larger banks, are filled with rooms of executives that went through the entire system together. In fact, to be more specific, white male executives that played golf together as management trainees and are now in the top leadership positions in financial institutions, and they've never had a losing year. They've never and probably will never have the threat of going out of business. However, they won't grow. They're having divert people actually attriting without them knowing it from a relationship basis while not on an account basis. I, I have accounts at two different financial systems, one for personal account, one for business account. And unfortunately, they don't realize that there will not be another account opened at either one of their organizations until they offer some of the services I can get from much smaller, much more nimble, much more targeted organizations that meet my needs for savings, retirement stability, investment services, small business services. And you're right. It gets frustrating because you go, don't you, doesn't it, why don't you, why do you, how do you wake up in the morning just doing things the way you were doing them in the past? Well, you know, we've seen on the podcast, people we've interviewed, the most innovative and progressive organizations are those where the leadership wants it to be that way. You know, it's not yeah, individual well situations, you know. So, Ali, you know, you, you're a publisher. You publish a great publication, FinTech Finance. And, and as you're looking to your year next year, what do you see as being some of the headline stories you see coming up? Every time I've tried to predict this, I have got it so wrong. Uh, so I'm going to continue that. Uh, continue that. That here. So let's go for. Here we are. Uh, Revolut buys Klarna. There we go. That's a headline that I would love to see. Um, uh, well, that, that, that's that. an interesting concept because it really gets Revolut out from a what I'm going to call being viewed as a single product company. Okay. Great. That's that. that that's. Uh, uh, I mean, that'd be incredible. But uh, uh, another one to throw uh, throw out there. I, I love this one because I've actually put it to them. Starling Bank acquires HSBC. Uh, I, I mentioned this to uh, somebody from uh, uh, Starling. I said, "What what would you do hypothetically if this is the case?" And they and they uh, they said, uh, "Oh, it'd be phenomenal." Look, all we would do would use the uh, in the UK we have a current account switching service which moves all the direct yeah, debits right, across. Right. And they just said we'd uh, we just use the current account switching service and uh, move all their retail customers across to us and and, and then just turn off all their technology. I was like, oh, amazing. I, that was oh, a- yeah. Well, you know, I I'll match you with one. I I think that uh, uh, 
chased by SoFi or SoFi buys a major bank. I, I, I'm a fan of SoFi um, and have been for quite some time. I think they have the technology. I think they have the chops. The challenges are the, the anchor is still the, the, the student loan portfolio, but they have all the makings of a great cloud-based technology company doing banking. And don't, I would say SoFi plus X, I'm going to be less aggressive than you are because I don't know how they grow bigger and better, but I think they're a, they're a sleeping giant. Um, you know, I think Galileo you, in there as well. That's oh, such a... Oh, exactly right. And, and um, you know, you, you, geez, give me another one. I, I like yours better than mine. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm going to go out there. So one of the ones that... Um, uh, we actually, um, we didn't break this story, but we were the fastest follower. And it, I have to admit, when we published this story, it did kill our website because uh, with too much traffic. But uh, Credit Kudos was acquired by Apple. Um, and that was a, um, a very interesting, uh, interesting move. Um, so I'm trying to think of one in a similar mindset. So I'm actually, I'm actually going to go and do say... you see Apple as being the that in 2023, they'll be the closest tech company to being a bank? Do you see them? Be, they're, they're maybe already there, but do you see them even expanding more into that realm? And will they be the leading non-bank bank? I actually think Amazon's going to give them a run for their money because Amazon has all of their uh, small, all of the small businesses utilizing them. Um, so I, I actually, I'm going to think, I think uh, there'll, be, there'll be a couple of acquisitions, I think, of, of some of the big tech firms buying things like credit kudos so i'm i'm going to go out with uh amazon buys mina technologies uh they're uh that's uh, they're, they're a smaller uh, tech firm for managing subscriptions yeah uh so I'm, i think that that could be an interesting an, an, an interesting one i've got one more i want to throw in there okay, i want to, want to bring yeah. in the, the, the insurance the insurance space as well okay yeah Chime and Lemonade oh, merger. Wow. That's pretty good. Those are two companies I really admire. Um, the CEO of Lemonade was on our show very early in our podcast history, and they totally got what the advantages and disadvantages of Lemonade were. You know, I, I asked him about digital transformation. He goes, it was, it, I've quoted him more than a few times, almost to the point of making it look like it was my quote, but the biggest hindrance to digital transformation is legacy leadership. And he goes, I did not know insurance when I got into Lemonade, but I did know technology. And it just shows that if you look at it from a technology perspective, without all the legacy thinking around what insurance needs to be, you can drive business in a different direction. It's exciting. Yeah. Ali, I'm, this is the first time, I can't believe it. This is embarrassing. It's the first time you've been on the show. I think I've been on your show a few times. Um, it's not going to be the last time even this year because um, I think if we put our heads together from the things we see as we're writing uh, new articles and, and doing new features for our publications, uh, it's pretty doggone cool what, what's going on in this industry. And uh, it, it good news is it because of what we do, it certainly keeps us busy. So, Ali, I really appreciate your time today and uh, appreciate your insights and what we can look forward to in 2023. 
Anytime, anytime. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, seeing you actually in Amsterdam in, in February. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. You know, one last thing. I've talked about uh, FinTech Finance Magazine. Ali, how does somebody get your publication? Well, it's, uh, it is available for anyone who wants a hard copy in the post, whether you, we've got a subscriber in Palau, we've got one person in Palau. So if you want a hard copy in the post, uh, it's a little bit slow because of Brexit. Go to ffnews.com, subscribe, I'll whack in your details, free forever. That's the, uh, that's the rule. You know, another thing I'd, I'd like to promote on your behalf is your interviews at all these events are are truly second to none. And I'm, I'm sitting here <laughs> doing an interview. But the videos you shoot, the innovations you have, the you have some fun posts, you know, the hot sauce ones, the haircut ones. You got all kinds of new dynamics that are just plain fun. And if you don't think banking's fun, you know, take a look at what Ali's producing at FinTech Finance. Uh, it's, it's really, really good in your event. I thank you again for the uh, great time in London. It was, uh, it was something that was needed from a psychological basis, but it was a great to spend some time with your family as well. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Any time, Jim. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed what we're doing, please be sure to give us a high rating on your favorite podcast app. Finally, be sure to catch my articles in the financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, remember, the banking industry is changing faster than ever leaving laggards in the dust. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.